bad parts. Put it on repeat. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Sarah Lohman. This here is Jonathan Soma. Together, we are the Masters of Social Gastronomy. Um, I write a blog called Four Pounds Flour, Historic Gastronomy, and I do food history. Soma, what do you do with your days? I run a fake school called the Brooklyn Brainery, where you take <laughs> classes for cheap, and they're wonderful and amazing. We are tonight are talking about sandwiches. I'm going first. I'm going to talk about the history of sandwiches, specifically the peanut butter and jelly, the different elements that have evolved over time to make an American classic. Soma, what are you talking about? Grilled cheese, Delicious. Subway. So, yeah, it's, you know, three basic elements. A sandwich is bread with stuff in the middle, and it seems kind of like a no-brainer. But, you know, someone had to discover it. And when you start breaking down the elements, I mean, if we talk about something like a PB&J, You've got the bread, you've got the peanut butter, and you've got the jelly. So where did these things come from? Um, I want to start with the bread, because whether it's a PB or J or a BLT or whatever other sandwich, I mean, I guess you can have like a low-carb lettuce sandwich, but I don't, I don't approve of this. So let's talk about the bread. And we have to have good bread before we can have a good sandwich. So this is the oldest bread. This is prehistoric bread. Um, Recent scholarship suggests that human beings have been baking bread for about 30,000 years. This is a fairly new discovery in the past four years. Scientists didn't think that humans really thought about baking. The oldest bread was probably based on gruel. Prehistoric humans loved drinking grainy porridges, as one does. And it was a short skip, hop, and a jump from having like kind of a wet, sloppy porridge to then maybe heating that on a rock and kind of making a little fried cake. So this is essentially unleavened. And when I say unleavened, there's nothing in it that's creating bubbles of gas to make it rise and be light and fluffy. So it's just this little like kind of flat piece of bread. Originally, it seemed to be made from cattail roots that were ground in a mortar and pestle and mixed into a paste and then fried on heated rocks. Now, what changes this sorry looking thing into an encrustable, equally sorry looking but more modern. Yeast is the first kind of big hit to make delicious bread. Yeast is floating in the air. It is hanging out with us in this bar right now. It is in your beers. It is up there. There it goes over there. That's the amazing thing about yeast. If you create a happy home for yeast, it's going to come sailing by, and it's going to hang out with you, and it can be your little friend. And that's what's going on up here. If you put some flour and water in a Tupperware and you put it on your windowsill, sometimes horrible bacteria comes and lives inside but you know, because it smells like cat puke, but only if you know what cat puke smells like. But sometimes, happy yeast comes by, and it lives inside, and then you know, because there's all these bubbles, because it's eating all the glutens, um, num, num, and then it's farting out carbon dioxide, and it's so happy, and you can keep it forever, as long as you keep feeding it, and as long as you don't confuse the Tupperware that it's in with the leftovers from dinner and put it in the microwave, which is very, very sad. So any of you can start a yeast culture from scratch just by creating a safe place for yeast to live. And that's probably what happened with the first leavened bread. That same watery gruel was sitting out maybe overnight, maybe for a day or two, and yeast was floating by in the air and made a little home inside. There are bakeries in New York City that have um, yeast cultures that have been around for 100 years or more. They just keep it and they keep 
they will take out what yeast they need and they'll put more flour, more water in. And you can go to like ore washers on the Upper East Side and eat the descendants of yeast that was floating around in New York City air over a century ago, which is both creepy and amazing. So yeast makes fluffy bread. And this was all kind of happening, well, pretty early on, but the first commercial production of yeast we see happening in ancient Egypt around 300 BC. The Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Romans were all really good bread bakers, and part of their abilities came not just from yeast, but from the development of refined flour. The Mesopotamians are the ones who really kind of invented um, mills. Two flat stones, one piled on top of each other, they are grooved so that when you mill the wheat, the chaff kind of falls out the side, and this creates a really finely ground product. Um, ancient humans were grinding grains in a mortar and pestle, which would have been kind of a very kind of rustic bread, but finer ground flour, finer bread, this was turned at first by hand, the bigger ones by donkeys or slaves, you know, as slaves do in Mesopotamia. And this led to, um, you know, if, a, if a unleavened bread is to like naan or a pita, this begins to be more like our modern breads. The Greeks and the Romans had breads that were equivalent to any kind of yeasty, luscious rolls we have today. So it's somewhere around this time that the first sandwich was created, at least the first one we have on record of bread with something inside. Passover is coming up. And if you are of the Jewish persuasion, you know that a very important part of the Passover meal involves a tiny little sandwich made from haroset. And that is believed to be the first sandwich known on record. It was invented around the first century BC, but um, it's known actually as the Hillel sandwich. But originally, there's some debate as to what um, was in the sandwich. Some interpretations say that it was the sacrificial lamb, and then later it was interpreted as the bitter herbs go in the sandwich, and then now it's the haroset, which is a mixture of apples and walnuts and wine that represents the mortar of the bricks, either of the pyramids or of, uh, that were kind of keeping the, the Jewish people in slavery. If you're Jewish, all of this makes sense. If you're Catholic, Good luck to y'all. So that is probably the first sandwich ever, ever invented. Now, um, about this same time, okay, so we've got the Hillel sandwich. About the same time, the Romans are also maybe eating something that's vaguely like a grilled cheese, maybe kind of like an open-faced sandwich. Um, but the kind of, oh, and also they're using pita bread. They don't really have utensils at their dinner table. They're using flatbreads to kind of scoop up their food. So this is like the sandwich evolution. By the time we get to the medieval era, we've got these things called trenchers, which are like Applebee's bread bowls. <laughs> I often wonder if like the first bread bowl inventor was a medieval scholar and simply looked to the past and he's like, edible bowl, got it, thanks medieval era. But these were stale and they would kind of be there because they were tough and they'd soak up all the meat juices or whatever. And then either at the end of the meal, if you're still hungry, you ate the bowl or you could give it to the poor or give it to the dogs, whatever you wanted to do. So evolution, bread, meat, by Shakespeare's day, we have things that are pretty much like modern sandwiches, um, used for portability. People would get them to walk around, people would get them at the theater, but they weren't called sandwiches. So up to this point, none of these have been called sandwiches officially. These were, I guess, rather boringly called bread and meat, or bread and cheese, as in give me one of those bread and meats. 
not very exciting. So how did it get the name of sandwich? <laughs> this is one of the stories in culinary history that you read and you're kind of like, that's not a true story. The sandwich cannot possibly be named after someone named the Earl of Sandwich. <laughs> but then you read it and everyone that you trust and every source written by a real person and not by an internet robot confirms the story to be true, that there was a person called the Earl of Sandwich and he made the sandwich. Here's the deal with the Earl of Sandwich. He was a British lord. There is a town called Sandwich. There's a tile, title called Sandwich. His actual name was John Montague. He was the fourth Earl of Sandwich. Here's the best quote I could possibly find about John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich. The fourth Earl of Sandwich was considered one of the most immoral men of his time. His malfeasance as the chief admiral of the English Navy pretty much contributed to the success of the American Revolution. Um, he boasted that he specialized in seducing virgins because he enjoyed the corruption of innocence for its own sake. <laughs> he was described as being as mischievous as a monkey and as lecherous as a goat. He was also called the most universally disliked man in England. <laughs> and he makes the sandwich. So the reason we know he invented this sandwich is because of a um, tour book to London. I just wanted to look up the date real quick. Um, oh, it was written in 1765. And there's a paragraph, although it doesn't, it doesn't attribute sandwich in the article, there's a reason we know it was him. So a minister of state passed four and 20 hours at a public gaming table, so absorbed in play that during the whole time he had no substance but a bit of beef between two slices of toasted bread, which he eats without ever quitting the game. This new dish grew highly in vogue during my residence in London. It was called by the name of the minister who invented it. So, Earl of Sandwich was on a 24-hour gambling bender. <laughs> and he was so involved with his gambling game that he could not get up from the table to eat and not gamble. So he asked his valet to bring him something, and his valet brought him one of his favorite snacks, which was salted beef, which is like preserved beef, between two pieces of bread. And he'd had this before, apparently, but on this special occasion, his 24-hour gambling bender, he was eating it in public, and all of his friends were like, oh, sandwich, what you got there? And he's like, oh, you know, some bread with some meat in the middle. And everyone was like, I want what sandwich is having. So then, by the next year, oh, yes. So that was written in 1765, down. But apparently, even before that, we've got a first written reference to a sandwich. There's a personal diary of another nobleman, but he, he said that he um, dined out upon a bit of cold meat or a sandwich. So you put the two and two together, and apparently, the most hated man in England invented the sandwich while he was gambling for 24 hours. So, original sandwich is salted beef and bread. Um, in England, these were considered like restaurant fare for the most part. Oh, 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 I should say, his official biographer points out that the Earl sandwich worked quite a bit, and he says that the only reference we have to him eating this sandwich at a gambling table is this one tour guide passage, and the biographer said, well, he could have been very well working at his desk at home, and knowing the Earl sandwich like I do, I am not buying it. How is he going to deflower all those versions? At his desk? Come on. So, sandwiches created. 
The first recipe in America labeled as a sandwich doesn't appear until the 1840s because after the revolution, we're very resistant to things that are English, particularly foods that have the title of an English aristocrat. So although we may have been eating things that have bread on top of it, um, we weren't calling it sandwiches. The English, by the way, um, they preferred beef and we liked ham better. Part of it was agricultural kind of abundance, but part of it was the fact that we were trying to, we were separatists at this point. We wanted to separate ourselves from English culture. It's a pretty cut and dry ham sandwich, bread, meats, mustard, butter, just like you would expect it to be. Through the end of the 19th century, sandwiches were simply defined as meat or fish between two pieces of bread, buttered or plain, which is certainly not how we define sandwiches today. Today, we don't just eat sandwiches. We, as Americans, we fucking love sandwiches. So why? How did we get there? Well, it has a lot to do with the bread. At, by the end of the 19th century, in American cookbooks, there's a lot of fussy instructions about how to prepare the bread, how to slice loaves of bread. If it's a fancy tea party, very thin and crustless is the way to go. If you are a sturdy working man, hearty and with the crust on. So we had to slice the bread to make the sandwiches. It was a simpler meal, maybe not necessarily a time saver. So then we get sliced bread. That's the guy that invented sliced bread. That is him with his sliced bread machine. There is a worker loading, well, actually she's catching the bread after it goes, it gets pushed at very high speeds through very thin wires and that slices it. So he was a jeweler and his name was Otto Rowetter. And he invented this machine in 1917. And he spent 11 long years shopping this around to different bakeries because the bakery simply said, well, what housewife is going to want this? They can just cut their own bread. So it doesn't get installed into a factory until 1928. And then within two years, by 1930, 90% of store-bought bread was pre-sliced. So this is a huge change. The American housewife, the American mother, really sees this as, an, as a convenience food. This is saving her time, this is standardizing sandwiches, and I mean, essentially, Wonder Bread is coming out at the same time. This is yeast leavened, refined flour, and sliced that should have been the last slice of bread we ever needed. But that seems like a topic for a whole different MSG. So now we've got this standardized white kind of blank slate. And there, at the early 20th century, is this perfusion of sandwiches of all shapes and sizes and fillings. But one of the most, one of the earliest from this time, and one of the most prevalent sandwiches is the peanut butter and jelly. So, where did PB and J come from? Um, let's talk about the peanut butter. We've got the bread. What about the peanut butter? So, peanuts are native to America, so it makes sense that peanut butter sandwiches are like such an American thing. So who was the guy that did all those things with peanuts? We learned in school, peanut everything guy is, what's his name? George Washington Carver. So George Washington Carver does indeed discover peanut butter, but he does not seek a patent on it because he believes that all food products are gifts from God. John Harvey Kellogg, inventor of Kellogg's cornflakes, <laughs> does not give a shit. And he patents, oh, oh, there's peanut butter lady. He patents peanut butter in 1895. So he holds a 20-year patent on this, and he begins exclusively manufacturing peanut butter in the early part of the 19th century. Now, not necessarily a bad thing. So, okay, it's not a gift from God. It's a gift from 
uh, noble businessman. But he's a really good marketer. He's a really good showman. And he's really kind of single-handedly brings peanut butter to general public. He runs a health spa that is a vegetarian health spa. And he popularizes vegetarianism, but also rewrites the American diet. Now we're eating breakfast cereal instead of ham and eggs every morning. And he's saying instead of dinner of roast beef, have a peanut butter sandwich, a nut butter sandwich. Um, but here's what's really interesting about the rise of peanut butter. It becomes very trendy, so there are really fancy places serving it, and it was seen at all the most upscale occasions. And we didn't have 100 years ago the same sort of, I mean, it was a new product. So it was treated like any other sandwich spread, like mayonnaise or mustard. And it was savory. I mean, peanuts are a little bit naturally sweet, but there wasn't sugar added to it at this point. So. Some of the earliest peanut butter sandwiches were um, the peanut butter and pimento sandwich and the peanut butter and watercress sandwich, both served in upscale tea rooms in New York City. But on the other hand, peanut butter was cheap. Um, at the turn of the century, it was 20 cents a pound. So it was recommended as much for fancy cocktail parties as it was for the average Joe on economic menus. And it was supported by health advocates because it was such a good source of protein while being very, very inexpensive. So it really was this great equalizer in America amongst the classes as far as the peanut butter could be on anybody's dinner table. So when does the first PB&J recipe appear? Well, it's in 1901, so just six years after peanut butter is patented. It comes from the Boston Cooking School magazine, which was one of the like, uh, most important influences in American cooking. And here's how the recipe reads in an article about peanuts. For variety, someday try making little sandwiches or bread fingers of three very thin layers of bread into a filling, one of peanut paste, whatever brand you prefer, and currant or crab apple jelly for the other. The combination is delicious and so far as I know, original. So to me it's crazy to think about something that is so everyday now to have actually been invented that this lady on a whim, or who knows how she came up with the combination, is writing for the very first time, that is the first time we have a reference of peanut butter and jelly in print, and saying, I've never heard of this before. This peanut butter and jelly? What do you speak of? Like, that to me is huge. So here's the thing. Skippy did a lot to revolutionize how we get peanut butter today. Um, they developed processes by which they could stabilize the oils and that it was hydrogenized so that it created the kind of smooth, consistent product that sits in our pantries for the most part. But now today when you go to somewhere like Whole Food, you get that fresh ground peanut butter where the oil kind of separates and it's a little chunkier, or grindier and doesn't have any sugar in it. That peanut butter at Whole Foods is much more like turn of the century peanut butter, like peanut butter was 100 years ago. So I dug up some of the most popular recipes for peanut butter 100 years ago, because until peanut butter and jelly, that was, you know, it wasn't for a long time the most popular combination. It starts getting more popular after sliced bread, starts getting more popular after the middle of the century. Tonight, for your tasting pleasure, I have three of the most popular peanut butter and blank combinations from the turn of the century. The one I did not bring is peanut butter and pickles. I just <laughs> experiment at home. However, we do have peanut butter and sweetened condensed milk. Things like that were often added to make the peanut butter more spreadable so that it was much more like the Skippy peanut butter. Um, we also have peanut butter and hot chili sauce. And we have peanut butter and bacon. Thank you, everybody.
So, once upon a time, in the long ago land of 2006, um, there was a Panera Bread. Um, they make sandwiches, in case you don't know. And they were in a shopping center. And then Qdoba, Mexican girl, which is basically Chipotle, um, tried to move in. And Panera sued to block them from moving in because in their contract with the shopping center, they said that there could be no other sandwich stores. And they said, look, we sell sandwiches. Qdoba basically sells sandwiches. Who are we fooling here? So we cannot let Qdoba move in. So um, basically a court had to decide or a judge had to decide whether <laughs> Qdoba was selling sandwiches or whether they were selling some other magic food that, that was not a sandwich. Um, and it turns out, no, according to the law of the United States, um, burritos are not sandwiches. So rest assured, all of you who said that that first picture of a burrito was not a sandwich. But not everyone agrees with that. So NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, they have this thing on a blog called Sandwich Monday, where on Mondays they eat sandwiches. And their definition of a sandwich is, okay, also they're always very strange sandwiches. I'm not sure what this sandwich is, but it's something strange. Um, so their idea is it's a protein encased in a carbohydrate. So as long as there's a carbohydrate, carbohydrate on the outside and a protein on the inside, it's a sandwich. But then, what the hell is KFC's double down? Because that's a protein on the outside and a protein on the inside. So honestly, everything is a sandwich. What? Yeah. I mean, I think there has to be some sort of, I mean, okay, later on I put a protein on the outside, so I'm gonna say that basically anything is a sandwich as long as there's one thing around some other thing. <laughs> Especially the time that I tried, okay, so like two and a half weeks ago, I decided I was gonna eat nothing but sandwiches until MSG happened. and. <laughs> And in one and a half days, I ate about 11 sandwiches. <laughs> and I was like, there's no way I'm gonna survive this. So I stopped. And I didn't even have a very you know, encompassing uh, view of what sandwiches are. But in theory, pretty much anything could be a sandwich. Um, it's the mystery of what sandwiches are. It's like pornography, you know it when you see it. So, <laughs> before I talk for a really long time about grilled cheese, I'm gonna talk about some pretty awesome sandwiches or some pretty popular sandwiches or some pretty regional sandwiches. So number one, Fluffernutter. Who's had a Fluffernutter? Okay, so not to talk about Subway again, but I learned what a Fluffernutter was when one day someone came in and they said, I would like a Fluffernutter. And I was like, oh, what? And they were like a Fluffernutter. And I was like, oh, God, what's happening to me? <laughs> Something's gone terribly wrong. But so a Fluffernutter is a sandwich uh, which has marshmallow cream, also known as fluff, um, and peanut butter. And uh, in 1960, uh, the company that owned the fluff actually had an advertising company come up with the name Fluffernutter in order to help market their, their marshmallow cream. Um, so this was, it's really popular in Massachusetts because it actually comes from Massachusetts, fluff does. And in, in 2006, <laughs> Um, okay, so wait first. So going back in the day, um, it was invented in 1915. Um, the marshmallow cream was. It was uh, the Fluffernutter sandwich, not called a Fluffernutter, but it was published in World War One, and it was called the Liberty Sandwich. So then fast, right, like Freedom Fries. So fast forward to 2006. 
And a senator from Massachusetts finds out that uh, their son is being fed, or, or their son is being served fluffernutters every single day in middle school. What? Right? <laughs> it's awesome slash what? All, all appropriate responses. Um, so this senator was like, that's it. We're going we're gonna to ban fluffernutters <laughs> to being one-day-a-week foods because they're not really that healthy. So then a, a Massachusetts state representative was like, actually, what I'm going to try to do is make it the official state sandwich of Massachusetts. <laughs> so in 2006, uh, Kathy Ann Reinstein decided she was going to rebel and she was going to make the state sandwich. And her slogan was, fight to the death for fluff. <laughs> Unfortunately, it failed. But she kept living, despite the fact that she was fighting to the death. She tried to do it again in 2009. Failed once again. So Fluff for Nutter twice failed as the state sandwich of Massachusetts. <clears throat> the po' boy, going down to the south, uh, is from New Orleans. Um, it usually has fried seafood or roast beef. And the thing that sets it apart from a normal like sub sandwich is the fact that it's on French bread. Um, the fake story about why it exists uh, or how it got its name is... Um, there were some ex-streetcar operators who owned a restaurant in New Orleans, and there was a four-month-long streetcar worker strike. And so all of these streetcar workers, they had no money, so how are they going to eat? So what happened was the people who were in the restaurant were like, hey, you know, we were, we were streetcar workers out in, on the West Coast a long time ago, and we're just going to give you all these sandwiches for free. And so all of the workers were like, oh, you bunch of poor boys getting all of these free sandwiches. And from there, it became the po' boy sandwich. Um, but that story is not true at all. Um, it's, it's from some like French term when you talk to waiters. It's nothing, nothing as fun as that. But also from, well, New Orleans, we won't call the South. But from the South, pimento cheese. Who has had a pimento cheese sandwich? Not nearly enough people. So what happens is you take cheddar cheese, you take pimento peppers, mayonnaise, you can throw in other things like some places like pickles or like salt and pepper, stuff like that. Um, and it's just, it's kind of like the cheese version of a tuna fish sandwich is what I'll call it. Um, it became widely available after the turn of the century in like the 1900s. Um, and it's a really popular snack in the Philippines. So despite the fact that you are not familiar with this incredibly popular dish from the American South, all these people in the Philippines are totally into it. Monte Cristo sandwich, who's had this? Yeah, I didn't know what a Monte Cristo sandwich was for a really long time. And then I learned that you can take French toast and combine it with a ham and cheese sandwich and you get a Monte Cristo sandwich. And I was like, this is incredible. Who the hell invented this? So it's the American version of a croque monsieur, uh, which is from France. But we had to figure out our own way to do it. So um, the first one was... Uh, I mean, the first one that was found on a menu was in 1941, but it wasn't really popular until the 60s when a restaurant in Disneyland was like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to start serving Monte Cristos, and all of these people coming through Disneyland would end up having Monte Cristos, and then Monte Cristos ended up spreading all over America. So you can thank Disneyland for this one, but also no one knows where the name came from. And a fried brain sandwich. Who has had a fried brain sandwich? Yeah, it's real. Um, so this is the oldest out of all of these in the 1880s. 
um, in the St. Louis stockyards. Um, they started to boom. I'm not sure why exactly people who work in the stockyards really want to eat fried brains, but what happened was you'd take cow brains and you'd fry them and you'd slice them and you'd put them on a sandwich like that. Um, but uh, unfortunately, well, after the stockyards started to go downhill, people didn't want them as much. So now there are very few holdouts in uh, Indiana and Ohio where you can find a fried brain sandwich. And on top of that, we have this cool thing called mad cow disease. And where does mad cow disease like really affect cows? Mostly in the cow's brain. So do you want to eat a cow's brain? Not really. What they do these days is they make them out of pig brains. But I don't know if you've ever seen a pig or a cow, but a cow is much larger than a pig. So the people who run the restaurants hate making them out of pig's brains because pig's brains are so much smaller and they require so much work. So instead of like frying one brain and slicing it up and feeding it to a bunch of people, you have to make a whole bunch of brains and slice them up and feed them to a bunch of people. So they're kind of hard to find these days. Um, but you know, there are certain, if you really want to get uh, a fried brain sandwich, it's probably gonna be pig's brain. Um, but there are certain places in Illinois that have like country festivals and they're like, hey, country festival time. And the churches make a bunch of foods and the most popular food is the fried brain sandwich. So take a trip, eat a sandwich. But let's be honest, what we want to know about is a grilled cheese sandwich. Um, so here's my number one qualm with looking up recipes for the best grilled cheese sandwich. Stop putting other things on grilled cheese sandwiches. They are no longer grilled cheese sandwiches. If you take a sandwich and you're like, this is, this is the best grilled cheese sandwich you'll ever have, take a pound of ham and a quarter pound of mushrooms and cook them and then put a little bit of cheese on top and put them in a sandwich. It's not a grilled cheese sandwich, it's a melt. It's a melt. I would say if you, like you can probably, I might let you put a tomato on a grilled cheese sandwich, but the idea is that a grilled cheese sandwich is simply grilled cheese and nothing else. If we want numbers, because I don't, I don't want to be mean about this, 80% um, by weight should be cheese. <laughs> So we all have kitchen scales and we can all figure this out, it'll be fine. So, all right, the thing is there are a lot of different parts to grilled cheese, um, right? Usually I have a lot of adorable pictures. This is probably my only adorable picture tonight. It is creepy. I mean, it's a bread turtle eating some lettuce. I think it's adorable. So the question is, what kind of bread should we put on a grilled cheese sandwich? Now, I could ask all of you, but instead, I wouldn't have my presentation ready in time. So I did an experiment. Um, so I took three different types of bread. So the first kind of bread that I did was sourdough bread. Who here would be into grilled cheese with sourdough? <laughs> right, here's the thing. Like sourdough bread is great. Um, it has a lot of flavor, but the problem is it has too much flavor. So if you want to really savor the taste of the cheese, you can't really go with sourdough because it's delicious. It's amazing, I love it, it's great. But unfortunately, if you want to eat a grilled cheese sandwich and just really, really go for the cheese that you're tasting, sourdough is not going to cut it. I will say that it was the best bread. What we did was we, we fried up all the bread individually and just ate bread that was grilled. Grilled bread sandwiches minus the sandwich part. And the sourdough was the best tasting, but it wasn't the best for a sandwich because it was so powerful. Next up, we did white bread. People don't seem to like white bread. 
Um, I mean, it was fine. It didn't really taste like anything. It tasted incredibly sweet, though. Um, but what ended up being the winner was actually potato bread, which has a lot more flavor inside of it than white bread does, but it's not an overpowering flavor. So it gives a little bit of a fullness, and you don't feel like you're eating cheap garbage bread, but instead you're eating potato bread, which is not cheap garbage bread. So a lot of the time we made our uh, grilled cheese sandwiches during the test out of potato bread, but at one point we did actually end up going for sourdough and white bread. So if you want to get fancy and you don't really care about the taste of the cheese, go with sourdough, ignore white bread, go for potato bread if you want something kind of plain. So now we need a cooking method. Um, you might not be familiar with the fact that there are like 10,000 different opinions about how to cook a grilled cheese, but there are. Number one, do not bake your grilled cheese. Um, if you want to have a delicious sandwich that has some sort of fat on the outside and then bread and then cheese in the middle, you're going to grill it. You're going to put it on a pan. You can absolutely put, it, put that same sort of sandwich into a broiler. You can put it into an oven. Just don't call it a grilled cheese sandwich, even though it's really easy to do and you don't get anything dirty when you're doing it. So a lot of the conversations I was having with people about grilled cheese, they're like, look, I'm really drunk and I need to eat a grilled cheese sandwich. I will allow you to make a grilled cheese sandwich in your oven. You probably won't remember to turn it off, but you can make a grilled cheese sandwich in your oven if you're incredibly drunk, but it won't be the best because it doesn't have the fat on the outside. So you're, you're cooking in a pan but there is the question of open versus closed face. So the idea is that instead of making a complete sandwich and putting it into the pan, instead you make two half sandwiches and you set them side by side and when they've finished browning or when the cheese is finished melting, you fold them on top of each other. Now it turns out that when you cook an open face grilled cheese sandwich, they cook much faster. Um, like I said, everyone's like, I'm drunk and I want to eat a sandwich really, really fast. When you cook a sandwich that's uh, a closed-faced grilled cheese sandwich, it might take you like six to eight minutes. I did a lot of timing. Um, but when you make an open-faced grilled cheese sandwich, it might only take you like two minutes and 30 seconds or maybe three minutes. So if you want a grilled cheese sandwich in about half the time in which you can really keep an eye on what's happening, you've got to go for uh, an open face. Cook it in a cast iron or a non-stick or a stick pan, because guess what? You're going to cover the outside with some sort of fat, so it's not a big deal. But here's the thing that's kind of crazy. Put a lid. Yeah, right? It's crazy. So we have, we have an open-faced sandwich in there, and we have a closed-faced sandwich. And the idea being that if you cover your pan with a lid, it keeps all of the heat in there. So yes, um, the bottom part of your bread is being cooked by the direct heat. But the top part is kind of being steamed. But like, does it matter if your cheese is being steamed or if it's being straight grilled or if it's having like convection currents or conduction or whatever? No, no, You're, you don't care about science. All you care about is, hey, I want my cheese to melt. So the best thing that you can do is cover it with a lid and it'll cook probably two or three times faster. And another thing about that is you wanna keep it low and slow. This is my gross oven after cooking it for a while. Um, I keep it on about 2.5 is what we'll call that. Um, it, it, <clears throat> it helps by letting the bread get cooked enough but not burnt. I'll show you pictures of burned things later. Um, and your cheese doesn't melt faster than your bread will toast and your bread doesn't toast faster than your cheese will melt and everything works out in the end. 
So now we have to figure out what the best fat is to put on your bread. Because you're like, what? Of course. Of course we just put butter. Butter is the best. Here's the thing. We tried three different things. We tried butter. We tried bacon fat, because there was the bunch just laying around in my house. And we tried mayonnaise, which you might not be familiar with. People, that's not gross. I mean, it's not the best. So <laughs> the thing about butter is whenever we picked butter up, because we just fried all these three at the same time, we tried the butter. And we were like, oh, this is clearly the bacon. Time to move on to the next one. And then the next one was the bacon. We were like, holy shit, we got tricked by butter. Um, <laughs> butter carries a lot of flavor with it. The problem with butter is that it doesn't, I mean, if you're my roommates, you keep it in the fridge. So it takes a really long time to bring it out and like spread it on the bread. And it's really important to cover your entire bread like from edge to edge with the fat. So butter is great if you can leave it out in a butter dish or a butter bell. Um, but use mayonnaise otherwise. But we'll get to mayonnaise. So bacon. Bacon fat just tastes like bacon. So if you want it, your sandwich to taste like bacon, use bacon fat. That's all I can say about that one. Um, mayonnaise. Mayonnaise is about 80% fat. And one thing you can do is it's always spreadable, um, which is the upside to it. So if you want to make a quick grilled cheese sandwich, you come home and you're like, I need a grilled cheese in three minutes. The thing to do is actually to use spreadable mayonnaise, and then you'll be OK. Um, it takes, tastes kind of tangy, though. So it's almost like you're using a sourdough bread, even if you're using a potato bread or a white bread. So it adds an extra flavor to the sandwich um, that's not always a flavor that you're looking for. But it's generally, it's not bad. It's not bad. So butter is the best. We chose to use butter for most of this. Um, but what went on the inside? I bought $150 worth of cheese. But the rule was that I couldn't buy fancy cheese. I had to just go to like Brooklyn Fair and be like, give me all of the cheapest versions of all of the cheese. Because like, we're not buying fancy cheese here, let's be honest. So, number one rule of cheese is you have to grate it. Unless it is craft singles, you have to grate it because you are not cutting it in small enough chunks. And the more surface area that's exposed to the world, the faster it's going to melt. And all you care about is getting it to melt very quickly. So I know it's going to take you another like five seconds to get out the grater and wash the grater afterwards, but I promise you it's worth it. But then, how much bread versus how much cheese? If it's grated, 50-50. Um, you want to have as much cheese in terms of height as you do bread. It's not too crazy. It seems like a lot of cheese, but once it melts down, it takes up much less space. So now the fun part. Um, different cheeses melt differently. This is not a picture of cheese. It's a picture of lava. Um, I'm going to talk about a bunch of different things that go into how cheese melts. And they're, I'm going to talk about them like they're all individual things, but they all interact with one another. So every cheese is kind of crazy. And even if I say cheddar does this, there are like 20 different kinds of cheddar. So each of them are going to act differently. So don't quote me on any of this. So as you're heating it up, at uh, 90 degrees Fahrenheit, the milk fat will melt that is in the cheese. And as you go further and further up, these are the points at which the protein breaks down enough to get into a, like, a nice smooth flow. So at 130 degrees, soft cheeses like blue cheese will start to come apart. 150 degrees, cheddar and Swiss will start to come about. Um, and 180 degrees is when Parmesan will start to flow. So why, why is it like that? Well, for most of these, it's water content. Um, Parmesan is very, very dry, so it takes a lot longer to melt, whereas soft cheeses are very, very moist, so they melt very quickly. 
this is a cool graphic of what happens. So the top one is unmelted cheese with a bunch of protein surrounding a bunch of fat. And then on the bottom, once the protein is like, oh, I got hot enough, I'm going to start being crazy and melty, then the fat can rise to the surface. And you're like, what does that even mean? Here's what it means. If you cook your grilled cheese wrong, you're going to have an oily mess. Because what happens is um, all of the fat is, turns into liquid and all of the protein starts to melt and then they end up separating you get something incredibly gross like this. This is why cooking um, with an open face sort of method is great because you can catch your cheese before it gets to this point. Now, the, one of the important things about this is the fat to protein ratio. So uh, cheeses that have a higher fat to protein ratio will end up being greasier after you make them in a grilled cheese. So Parmesan cheese, uh, 0.7, I guess, grams of fat to grams of protein. Um, mozzarella, 1.0, cheddar, 1.3. So out of all of those, cheddar will be the greasiest, and Parmesan will be the least greasy, despite the fact that you have to get Parmesan up to 180 degrees in order to make it melt. This will all come together later. So <clears throat> calcium bridges, this was an advertisement for milk or calcium or something. So it's just a bridge being supported by bones. Um, but the idea is that, so you have all these uh, casein proteins that exist in milk, that's what, or in cheese, that's what makes up the bulk of the structure of cheese, all these proteins. And you have these things called calcium bridges that connect all of these pieces of protein. Um, and the idea is that uh, the number of calcium bridges dictates how flowy your cheese is. And it's kind of like a party. Um, so if there are a lot of calcium bridges, nothing can move. Um, and it's like a party where you have a whole bunch of people there. And so if you have a cheese and there are a million calcium bridges there, then nothing can move and it doesn't melt very well. But if you have a party where there are very few people there, you have very few calcium bridges, very awkward, things start to get oily really quickly, everyone hates it. What you're looking for is the sweet spot in the middle with just enough calcium bridges to make it just flow, flowy enough. And the way that you know how to get the right amount of calcium bridges is pH. So if you have pH that is too high, you have too many people at your party, and then your cheese won't melt right. Um, if you have too few, or if your pH is too acidic, which is if it's too low, then it starts to melt in a creepy way and then it gets all greasy and no one wants to eat it. Whereas if your pH is in like 5.3 to 5.5, then everyone's happy. So I was like, okay, great, science, I don't care. I'm just gonna go buy a million cheeses and grate them all and put them on sandwiches. <clears throat> so I guess that's 15 cheeses? Yeah, there's some off the side. So. Extra sharp cheddar, everyone's favorite cheese, right? Who would make grilled cheese with extra sharp cheddar? Not nearly American. We'll talk about American. I'm not against it. So cover the top uh, to keep it warm. Cooked it for two and a half minutes. Um, bam, oil spill, terrible. It's really greasy. As you're eating it, it's like seeping everywhere. You're like, I'm eating the grossest pizza in the world. I feel really bad that I ever did this. Um, the proteins have squeezed together and kind of pushed out all the fat and kind of puddled it on top and then you feel like a gross person. Who here likes Havarti cheese? Yeah, Havarti's even worse. It's disgusting. Don't ever try to make grilled cheese with Havarti. It's terrible. Who here likes Gouda? All right, Gouda actually was okay. 
Um, it had a really good texture. As you can see from this picture, it wasn't very oily. Um, a little bit of oil came to the top, but not very much. Um, it didn't have very much flavor though. So what my tasting panel came up with was that Gouda would be very good paired with another flavor, um, such as another sort of cheese or some sort of addition to turn it into a melt. But as a grilled cheese by itself, it's probably not the best. Gruyere, anyone? Gruyere smells gross. It smells gross. If you make a grilled cheese out of Gruyere, you're like, this is disgusting. I'm cooking someone's feet in a pan. Um, the worst thing about it was, though, it took forever to cook. So I said before, like, two and a half to three minutes is how long things took. And I was like, over four minutes? You're not melted enough? I'm taking a picture of this. This is horrifying. This is like my nightmare. So Gruyere just takes way too long to, to melt. And a lot of people on the internet, if you can trust them, they like to say that Gruyere is a really good grilled cheese cheese. I disagree because it smells bad, it doesn't taste great, it takes forever to melt, and you really want your grilled cheese right then. And it's just, my notes just say horrifying, horrifying. No one likes smelling this. <laughs> Parmesan cheese. Um, six to seven minutes, still waiting for it to melt fully, but it didn't smell gross like the Gruyere did. Um, it just tasted really salty though. It was kind of like you took that thing uh, when you're at Pizza Hut and you just dump it all in your pizza to give it an extra layer of cheese and it doesn't, it doesn't taste very good. Uh, but it did melt better than I thought. And I think what happened was because you're doing it in that closed environment, there's a lot more moisture kind of evaporating away and um, hiding out in there in order to moisturize the Parmesan to let it melt more quickly. Blue cheese, it turned into a soup. I love blue cheese, I thought it tasted good. I wouldn't recommend it on a sandwich by itself, though I might have eaten the whole thing and thought no one should ever do this ever again. Um, but because blue cheese is a soft cheese, it melts at a very low temperature. So you can get your, it doesn't look, I mean, it's a little greasy, it's not as greasy. Um, and it also will make your sandwich much more quickly. Accidentally bought soy cheddar? It melted great. Uh, it grated like American cheese. It tasted like American cheese. It wasn't, it wasn't anything different from any of the other cheeses. Um, so if you, know, you want to eat soy cheddar, more power to you. Uh, but there are all of these stringy cheeses. There's a category of Italian cheese. Um, and I forget exactly, they're like pasta cheeses or something. I forget their fancy name. Um, but they're, uh, they're mozzarella and provolone. And so the idea is that when you have cheeses that melt well, there are two kinds. There are flowy cheeses, like say like cheddar or maybe blue cheese, and then stringy cheeses like mozzarella and provolone. And I made this one on sourdough, and it was described to me by my roommate as eating nuts and gum. <laughs> because when you put provolone cheese on a sandwich and you melt it, it doesn't get flowy. And you're like, no, stringy cheese, like on pizza, it's totally fine. But when you have stringy cheese that's in a sandwich, you're like fighting it, trying to chew it in your mouth, and it's like sticking everywhere, and like your life is miserable, all because you thought you could use provolone cheese in order to make a grilled cheese sandwich. You cannot, don't ever do it. Don't ever do it with mozzarella either. Also, fresh mozzarella doesn't even melt, so you'd be screwed. But there's a whole category of cheeses that don't melt. And my favorite that I learned about was Chev, and it was like goat cheese doesn't melt. It gets soft, but it doesn't melt. And I was like, oh my God, 
I'm going to make little discs of chev and I'm going to fry it in a pan and it's going to be like a little cheese pancake. It's going to be delicious. So I started to make a little cheese pancake. I put it in the pan and I was like, I'm so smart. I'm so smart. I'm going to blog about this. I'm going to be all over the internet. Everyone's going to love me. And I tried to flip it and it just broke apart and it was gross. And I don't recommend trying to fry goat cheese by itself. So you live and you learn. Big fail. But there's a whole other category of cheese. Um, you have cheeses that are uh, created using rennet, which is an enzyme from uh, like cow stomachs. And you have cheeses that are made using acids, um, which are like citric acid they use. Um, you can curdle them with, uh, say, lemon juice, stuff like that. And acid-based cheeses don't actually melt. Or they don't really melt. So you might run into these in normal everyday life. Um, paneer, uh, this is a picture actually of fried paneer. Paneer comes from like Indian food um, and it's made with acid and doesn't really melt. Halloumi uh, is from Cyprus and queso blanco is Latin American and it doesn't melt. So I was like, great. What I'm going to do is, P.S. I saw this on the internet, but I copied it. And I was like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some paneer and I'm going to treat it like it's bread because it's friable. I'm going to put cheese on the inside and I'm going to make a grilled cheese sandwich in which instead of bread, I am using a non-melting cheese, which gives you the all cheese grilled cheese. So the reason why I will disagree with having a protein or a carbohydrate surrounding a protein is the fact that all cheese grilled cheese is clearly a grilled cheese sandwich. It just happens to have cheese on the outside and cheese on the inside. This particular one, I use mayonnaise on the outside. Why did I use mayonnaise on the outside? Because the, the butter was all cold, and so I couldn't spread the butter. So I just had to use the mayonnaise. But it was pretty good. Well, it was a little intense, and paneer is kind of squeaky when you eat it. <laughs> so it's kind of, I had mixed feelings. I was very proud of myself, but it's like I did something wrong, so. But doing things wrong didn't stop there. Um, so like I said before, mayonnaise works on the outside because it's about 80% fat. And I thought, huh, I found this brie that's 60% fat. So what if I tried to make another all-cheese grilled cheese, but instead it was all-cheese and all-cheeses grilled cheese, in which it is queso blanco, all, all like 12 of my cheeses on the inside, and then on the outside, I use this really high-fat brie as the butter. That was delicious. So, let's be honest, queso blanco melts a little bit more than I'd like. If I wanted to do this again, I would use paneer or perhaps halloumi. Um, but my roommates were very impressed. I was very impressed. They ate like two pieces and said, I'm never eating grilled cheese again. Um, and then I proceeded to make a, an American cheese grilled cheese sandwich, right? So, all right, what the hell is American cheese? Plastic. That's what people say. Okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing. American cheese is made out of cheese. It's made out of cheddar cheese. It's made out of Colby cheese. And um, what happened was in around 1916, um, this guy named James Kraft, you might have heard of things that his company has produced. Um, he's actually Canadian, but he, what he did was he took a bunch of odds and ends of cheese 
and then he tried to can them because the idea was the cheese would start to go bad and like no one wants cheese that's gone bad so he was like i'm going to preserve this cheese so i'm going to take all these all these random cheeses melt them together kind of like pressure cook them pasteurize them so that you won't die from eating this cheese and then it's going to be the best thing you've ever had um p.s so I was on the Wikipedia page a while ago for American cheese, and it said it was invented in 1911 by Hunter McShan from like Missouri. And I was like, I can't find any citations on the internet for Hunter McShan from Missouri. I can find some guy on Twitter whose name is Hunter McShan. <laughs> and he lives in Missouri, but is he a descendant? I don't know. And then I checked earlier today, and it was actually removed, because someone was like, that is a lie. And you were trying to steal James Craft's thunder. So James Craft was like, look, all of this cheese is going bad. Um, we're going to pasteurize it. It's going to be, this is from Etsy. This is bad cheese. Um, I don't know the URL. I can't tell you how to go buy this thing. So here's the thing. No one really liked the cheese that much, because it didn't taste that flavorful. But the military was like, I love this cheese. The military bought like a shit ton of American cheese and gave it to all the soldiers and was like, great guys, now you all have American cheese. You have, well, I guess it was just cheese or factory cheese or whatever, um, and you can eat it in your rations and you'll be very happy. But the, the way that it works is it's an emulsion. So when people are like, American cheese has chemicals added to it, Think about how when you have oil and vinegar salad dressing and you want it to mix together, you add chemicals to it. A chemical called like mustard, for example. Um, and what that mustard does is help it stay together so that it doesn't break apart into oil and vinegar. So it's the same sort of thing with American cheese where when you have a normal cheese and it melts and the fat kind of separates out and pools on top, what American cheese does is it just kind of hangs out and it stays how it is. And because the fats are all in an emulsion inside of the cheese, locked in with the proteins and the emulsifying agents, um, then they don't actually separate out. So it doesn't get greasy when you melt it. There are a lot of names for processed cheese, such as pasteurized processed cheese and pasteurized processed cheese food and pasteurized processed cheese product. Um, pasteurized processed cheese product doesn't actually mean anything. Um, it's basically used so they can use the stuff called milk protein concentrate which doesn't count as a dairy product, so you can't add it into uh, processed cheese. Um, the FDA won't let you, but Kraft wants to do it because it makes everything real cheap. It's incredibly difficult to research anything about American cheese because everyone hates processed cheese and they want to tell you it's poison. And I've done so, many re so much research on like artificial flavorings and MSG and all of those things, and it's way easier to separate fat fact from fiction except for processed cheese. So, here, I'm, here are the only facts we'll know about processed cheese. It's not going to kill you. It's basically just made of cheese or things related to cheese. <laughs> and it melts pretty well. So here's the thing is, um, when you start to melt American cheese, it just looks like that. And it just looked, that's after I tried to pick it up and it just stayed there. And I was like, are you melted? I'm not sure if you're melted. Like, you've been in there for two and a half minutes, which is my standard time, but I'm using, you know, an electric stove. Maybe things are bad. I don't know. Maybe I'll try to broil some of you. Um, so the idea is that all of the fat is just so trapped that it can't leak out and get greasy. So even though, say, you're eating a cheddar cheese, grilled cheese sandwich, and it looks really greasy, and you're like, oh, I'm eating all this grease, 
when you're eating an American cheese grilled cheese sandwich, it's just as greasy, you just can't see, well, it's not greasy, it's just as fatty, you just can't see the fat. It's hiding inside, which makes it taste better. So, I use Kraft Singles, and everyone in my house was like, Kraft Singles are terrible, they taste like plastic chemicals. And then I got some Boar's Head American cheese, and I grated it up, and I put it on some sandwiches, and my, my house was divided, as I say. Um, a husband and wife team, one of them said, is this just Kraft Singles again? And the other one said, this is the best grilled cheese yet. So depending upon what you're looking for, if you can deal with the flavor of American cheese, which I believe has a very noticeable flavor, it does have a very good texture, it does have a very good melt, it doesn't get greasy, it's fantastic for all of your future grilled cheese. But my favorite is actually mild cheddar cheese. Now, the thing is, remember how oily uh, the very first picture was of the extra sharp cheddar cheese? When you go to the store and you're like, I'm gonna buy some cheddar cheese, you're like, extra sharp cheese? That's extra fancy and it costs the same amount as mild. I'm totally gonna buy that. I know you do because I do that too. But the thing is, mild cheddar cheese is the same thing as extra sharp cheddar cheese. It just hasn't been aged for very long. So uh, an extra sharp cheddar cheese has maybe been aged for like 15 months or so, whereas a mild cheddar is maybe 15 weeks. Now what happens is over that uh, aging time, um, the pH changes. And so mild cheddar starts off with a fantastic pH that has the right number of calcium bridges that allows it to melt without giving up all of that oil. It's like the right number of people at your party so everyone can mingle. Whereas if you let it age for a long time, it starts to make more lactic acid, so it gets more and more acidic, and then you end up with uh, your pH is out of whack, and you don't have enough people at your party, and then for extra sharp cheese, it just gets super, super oily. So the secret is mild cheddar cheese for your grilled cheese. You might be like, that's not true, but go home, make it open face, lid on, mild cheddar, shredded, two and a half, three minutes for a side at 2.5 power, you will bite into it and you'll be like, this is my childhood. <laughs> I thought my childhood was nothing but American cheese, but apparently I've been lying to myself for forever. So lessons learned about grilled cheese. Number one, heat is your frenemy. And that heat is great because it does things like brown your bread. But on the other hand, if you make things too hot too fast, it'll start to melt all the protein and then you'll get really, really greasy grilled cheese. Extra sharp, extra sucks. You know why that's true. And if you want a grilled cheese sandwich that has a bunch of fancy stuff in it, stop calling it a grilled cheese, go back to Meltsville and just leave me with my wonderful mild cheddar grilled cheese sandwiches. The end.